This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back for part two of the discussion with Jordan Knopf. In this part of the interview, we continue the chat on sector and niche-focused funds, and also discuss Tusk's regulatory focus and how they drive value for startups. We address topics including the sectors that are most compelling due to the current regulatory environment, Jordan's thoughts on reacting to existing regs versus getting involved in the creation of new regulation. We also discuss the ways that Tusk specializes and provides value to their startups. And finally, we get Jordan's advice for investors and entrepreneurs regarding today's topic. Here is part two of the interview with Jordan Knopf of Tusk Ventures. So daily fantasy sports, we've we've touched on that, but uh, you know, given the regulatory environment today, any other specific verticals that you find particularly compelling? Absolutely. So you know, insurance is is another one. FinTech in general, I think you can go ahead and just categorize insurance is just particularly interesting in the in the sense that it's a very very highly regulated industry that has been just asleep at the wheel for a very long time you know we haven't seen innovation take place in this industry in 50 years and so there's a lot of companies out there that are innovating on the product side because i mean if if you think about it you're going toe-to-toe with an insurance company. If you want to out-innovate them financially, they're going to take you to the mat every single time because their yeah. balance sheet is too big. Yeah. But if you look at how many great technologists want to, their goal is to go work at an insurance company, you're going to get an astonishing zero. Um, so, <laughs> you know, your best engineers don't want to be at, at a place where they walk into work and people think that they're from the help desk or something. You know, they, they want to be in the limelight. They want to be at Google. They want to be at Facebook. They want to be <laughs> at your next best startup. And the insurance companies know this. They know that, you know, different ways to acquire customers then your traditional broker model, those are areas that are always very, very uh, lucrative in terms of what you look at from a venture perspective and the opportunity for technology to really help scale their operations. So um, that's one. I think that there's one that you know a lot of people, it's very, really, really interesting. Some people dance around it, but let's just call it out, cannabis. Yeah, I mean, this sure. is a, ma- it's a major, major industry that's unfolding. There's opportunity there. There's a lot of opportunity there. You know, in various uh, aspects, whether it's delivery, whatever way you want to slice it. And it just really matters when some of the, the later stage institutions get comfortable around it, uh, what's what's happening in that industry. Those are three really solid examples. There's uh, quite a few, though, uh, that are kind of piquing our interest that we're diving in deeper. Uh, that include, you know, some some aspects of telemedicine and uh, associated decoupling of uh, doctors and the types of, of therapies that they can, they can provide uh, and also who can provide them. 
separating practitioners from doctors to be able to go work more autonomously and probably a very, very large one that's going to affect a lot of uh, a lot of companies is the way that the 1099 workforce actually evolves. Hmm. So, you know, the on-demand economy has been that's a great example of something that came in and out of favor really quickly, but something that uh, major changes in the regulatory environment there could enable companies that fell out of favor to really take off and take advantage of, of a worker classification that would be kind of like a hybrid between W-2 and 1099. Yeah, certainly I can imagine anytime you get involved in an industry where the regs are being written um, with you know a potential huge market size, that, that can be a, a pivotal time, both from the investment side, the startup side, and not just being opportunistic and responding to the regs as they're written, but you know having some impact on what those regs end up looking like. That's uh, you hit the nail on the head there. So you know, there's the time whenever you're you're responding and dealing with a problem that has presented itself via a cease and desist or something of that nature is always going to be more expensive than getting ahead of it engaging with the political and regulatory bodies that are the stakeholders that you need to driving the narrative to them because it's a completely different narrative than you're used to telling an investor or a, or your customer base the way that you engage with them is really instrumental and you can have an impact on what industry looks like from a regulatory perspective going forward sure sure yeah from my own experience at small fish here in illinois but we've had a uh a $10 million angel investment tax credit for a number of years that just went away this year, did not get renewed. And so for about five months now, I've been working with the governor's office to not only get it reinstated, but but increased. And I, I can see the impact that being an active participant in regulation, um, I'm starting to see you know the impact that that can have on innovation and the number of startups that get founded and the likelihood that startups get funded. And the success ultimately that startups can have. So, you know, it's really interesting that you bring that up. That on, you know, because I think that now people are starting to see that the impact on businesses, a lot of that occurs at the state and the local levels. And for a lot of time, people thought that everything was federal. And the state and local level, really, I mean, the the impacts of the regular regulations that are uh, that are happening there. You know, as you see with Uber, as you see with FanDuel, like these are state by state battles, jurisdiction, you know, uh, municipality by municipality. Yeah. And yeah. it's, uh, you know, the impact that you can have on a business is tremendous. So do you guys have sort of a, a state or, you know, even even a more micro view than that? Or do you operate more at the federal level? No. So we actually uh, so we operate across the board. But the area that I think really differentiates us is that. We drive a lot of value on the uh, on the state by state level. So going, you know, we have a multi-state team that's focused on doing exactly what you just described on crafting, a, a, you know, on the regulatory affairs side. Uh, but you know, they look at a fifty-state analysis and they see how friendly, uh, how hard is this going to be to pass in each state. And they will attack the the map uh, accordingly and and strategically marry the business case for entering a state with the regulatory environment and help the C-suite determine what the market entry uh, roadmap looks like. And that's something that, you know, this is an it's always evolving, given obviously the regulatory climate. 
and getting deeper in this conversation, I would probably say a great segue to be would be have Bradley come on and talk, uh, <laughs> yeah. take a deep, take a deep dive into, into the regulatory aspect. But, you know, we, we definitely view this, uh, there's different times that our multi-state team is involved and, uh, we have uh, an office in Chicago as well that uh, that actually that's run out of. And um, so we, we view the local and state level as kind of a, a sweet spot to, to deliver for entrepreneurs. Awesome. Yeah, I was thinking with Bradley's experience in Illinois, I should pick his brain on, uh, you know, better ways that I can I can look at the ecosystem and the environment out here. But uh, so Tusk in general, you guys, you've got analysts and you've got associates that are specialists in, in various sectors as well as different geographies and such. So our, our breakout's really kind of unique in the sense that we have scaled drastically. Uh, I mean, in, in essence, it's kind of like we're a venture firm, but we're also a startup. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and that, uh, you know, we've grown uh, tremendously. So we have 17 people that are dedicated at Tusk Ventures to working with startups to provide this regulatory and political advi- uh, expertise, the majority of which are on the regulatory affairs team. So my, my team, my investment team, we're a three soon to be four person team. We're the people that are, are looking at what your traditional venture capital firm would be looking at. We're looking at TAMs. We're looking at risks. Uh, we're looking at the founding team. We're, we're kind of evaluating it through the process that we grew up in. And then what's great is that we have these uh, other people that are trained in a completely different different background that come from the world of politics that will help us evaluate you know companies from a political and regulatory lens and it's something that really kind of changed the way that i view investments so the regulatory affairs professionals are basically there's a natural fit where their background is so if they're a, a non-practicing attorney that we used to do MA transactions for energy, there's obviously a natural fit that they're going to be working with the energy companies or they're going to be working with uh, you know somebody that has a deep expertise in insurance. They're the ones leading the charge for any insurance company that we may, might be working with also on the 1099 side. And so, so yeah, there's a natural you know areas where people specialize on the regulatory affairs side. And then there's also areas that people specialize with uh, within my team as well. Got it. And any further thoughts or any additional color you want to provide on on sort of the way that you guys specialize at Tusk? So um, the way that the way we're specializing on on the uh, investment side, the breakout of the team is kind of we're looking, like I said, like we, we have to be able to add value strategically to the company. I mean, that's a that's a non-starter for us. But I think that it's all all behind kind of the macro thesis that we have that, uh, you know, regulation always lags innovation. And we've just seen a major technology boom, hopefully not the largest one that's in my lifetime. But, you know, <laughs> this is one that's a, that's been unprecedented. And uh, there's only so long that you can go without without, uh, you know, somebody catching people's attention. And no one really cares until you start turning a profit. And now we're seeing uh, a wave of regulatory regulatory uncertainty that's that's unfolding in the climate that we're in. And I think that really we're just kind of being nimble and and. Uh, trying to trying to see where where this unfolds and how we can best help our portfolio companies and you know focus on on opportunities that we see emerge as identified by our regulatory affairs professionals got it cool um, any other advice for founders or investors regarding today's topic 
Yeah, um, you know, I think that that for founders, it's a little bit different than for investors. So on the investment side, I, I think that looking at the traditional ICMs that I would write coming into this role, uh, it was kind of the same language for the regulatory risk. Uh, you know, that yep, there's some associated with it could could adversely affect this investment. And that's about it. Um, that's being taken a lot more seriously now. I think that after we've seen uh, some major headline news about companies that have undergone tremendous amount of regulatory scrutiny, getting shut out of markets, um, you're talking, your Airbnbs, your Zenefits, your Ubers of the world, these are things that have drawn a lot of attention and uh, to, to companies that have tremendous valuations. And I think that we're seeing that also at the earlier stage as well. And we've seen situations where this is one risk that can take a company to zero. You know, I, I didn't think about it from that lens before. What needs to happen on the regulatory front that would make this company go to zero? And uh, that's something that that's uh, just advice to anybody that's looking at an investment and assessing the regulatory environment. It can only be a gray area for so long. You know, do you have a chance to take a proactive approach? Uh, and really just thinking about, you know, who who are the in entrenched interests that are going to start paying attention and uh, taking it one step further before the, you know, beyond the uh, do I ask for permission or beg for forgiveness. Uh, and for entrepreneurs, I think that what they can do is uh, by taking a proactive approach and uh, going out and, and uh you know, there's sometimes whenever you, you want to just build a business as fast as you can, and there's the time to be laser focused on the product development. But there's also the time to start paying attention to this, uh, to the regulatory aspect. And, and it's one that we've seen a lot of startups and entrepreneurs start to do. And the trend that we're seeing is that they're getting er they're starting to pay attention earlier and earlier, which is really, really important. So um, I think that just uh, keeping that in mind and, uh, you know, as people move into this kind of unprecedented regulatory environment is, 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 is imperative. Got it. So if I'm an investor and I've got a portfolio company that has significant regulatory exposure of some sort, at what stage should I be reaching out to Tusk and, and uh, you know, gauging your interest? Are you guys early? Are you seed, pre-seed? Are you series A or do you invest even later? So that's a great question for you. You know, I would just connect you with the right person <laughs> and just uh, no. But I mean, the way that we work with venture capitalists or other VCs are look like it's not a, we are we are collaborators. Yeah. And even if it does not fit my investment mandate, you know, I'm more than happy to connect them with the right regulatory affairs professional that understands that industry and can give them free advice. Like it's just okay because a lot of what we've seen is, all right, some people think that they are dealing with a major risk, huge red flag, we may not move forward with this deal. And then after 20 minutes, realizing that ah, this, this really is actually not a big deal at all. Then there's other things where that's kind of written off, yeah, this is a no-brainer, this, uh, this is a very small risk that we got here, I wouldn't even consider it a risk, and actually, this, this, is, uh, this could be detrimental to the company's success. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, 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 it's really hard to tell, but directly answering your question on, if you've identified a risk there... You probably should have called us a month ago. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, but if, if it's still in an opportunistic stage, that's the best time to engage with us. If it's like, okay, there's an opportunity here for us to 
you know, to create a, a moat around our business or, you know, by working hand in hand with the helping craft regulation to make sure that we're proactively thinking about this the best way to to engage with Tusk. But, you know, for investors out there that just need just some advice on on a particular company or or vertical in general, we're more than happy to to do that. I'm just glad to hear that you're going to keep giving me special treatment. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, and you have your personal hotline. (laughs) But, you know, it's one of of those things that, you know, we're more than happy to to help uh, in the in the ecosystem, even if it doesn't fit in our mandate. But also, uh, you know, what we found that we're most effective is really kind of at the your fast growing institutionally backed like pre A, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, through the series B. Obviously, there's later stage, later stage companies that would fit into this outside of the our bucket, you know, the exceptions. But, you know, earlier than that, it's kind of like bringing a bazooka to a knife fight. You know, you really need to be some of these some of these founders need to be focused on heads down, building out their product and, sure. and, and being laser focused on that. And for the listeners benefit. Does Tusk have a committed fund by which they make in investments, or is it purely a bartering scenario where you're providing services in exchange for equity? It's, uh, that is a great question. That uh, given that the tremendous user base that you have, uh, you know, unfortunately, I can't really comment on the way that capital investments are being made. Uh, just uh, in in light of um, certain regulatory restrictions on that, but I Got will it. say that uh, that uh, it is a two part venture business. We have an advisory side that works hand in hand with uh, with making capital investments. Got it. Cool, Jordan. If we could address any topic related to venture, what topic do you think should be addressed, and who would you like to hear speak about it? Well, there's a blog post that was written relatively recently that uh, it caught my eye and it was just one that resonated really well with me. And I'm sure the story's been told many, many times, but the blog post was actually called The Hard Raise and it was put out by Fred Wilson. And he talked about his investment thesis and how hard it was to raise what we all know was probably the most successful venture, vintage venture fund of all time. Sure. We talked uh, and, to Lyndall Eekman about it. Yeah. And so it's, uh, you know, kind of getting getting that, the full story out of it and hearing about all the, the scars associated with, uh, you know, we've all been out there, you know, standing in the rain, chasing a train to catch the last uh, Acela back to New York from Boston or whatever it is. <laughs> uh, I think that that's something that could be valuable for a lot of uh, people that are out there and uh, and starting their their own funds or doing doing uh, in the midst of the fundraising process right now. Awesome, I missed that one. That's just at avc.com. The hard raise. Yeah, yeah. So it's put out uh, about uh, two months ago, I'll say, and it's one that uh, brings me back to my. Days at Blackstone, when you know, I would hear hear uh, Steve Schwartzman talk about whenever they founded the firm and being stuck in the Atlanta airport trying to get to a meeting, and then uh, you know going through my own experiences, and uh, you know it's uh, it's it's a definitely a story that is humbling to uh, to everybody that's been involved in the process, and I think it's uh, it's good to hear, and it's good uh, also for entrepreneurs to know that uh, venture capitalists go go through the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Cool. Um, so what startup investor has inspired and influenced you most and why? It's a great question. Uh, you know, I think that there's, um, as far as it goes with the individuals, there's quite a few out there. And I, and I think that uh, putting one name, you know, I, I might 
say that, you know, social capital uh, is probably one of those firms that that has influenced me and uh, just due to the ethos. And uh, Chamath is is just a, a voice that's out there that he's got the gravitas that people listen to and he, he says what he wants to say. And uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, his thought process and his background and it kind of his story in general just resonates really, really well with what we're doing here and, and kind of the way that I think about it, the world and that really there's the, the impact side of what they're doing. But the fact that they're building businesses there and helping helping drive value to companies that they're working with in a way that most people are too scared to think about doing. Um, and I, I think that's uh, that's definitely had the largest impact on the way that I think about investing that, you know, everybody wants to build a billion dollar business, but that doesn't mean that the, it, they can't be solving a problem that's important as well. Couldn't agree more. Those guys are awesome. Speaking of which, I think uh, I think their newsletter, which flies under the radar, it's called Snippets, is, is yeah, one of the best what, in the I, industry. I, I, Everybody needs to sign up for that newsletter. It is is one that does fly under the radar too much. And, uh, you know, also just following those guys and, uh, you know, seeing uh, what they're up to and uh, and their views on the impact that they can have just based on on uh, the way that they view the world and getting the empowering the right people uh, is, is phenomenal. Cool. And then, uh, Jordan, what's the best way for our listeners to connect with you? Yeah, uh, you know, they can connect with me. Uh, you know, some people, some people are always say, uh, you know, get a warm in. No, nope, you can just drop me an email. It's uh, Jordan at TuskVentures.com or you can uh, ping me on, on Twitter, just at Jordan off. And uh, that, that's, those are probably the two best ways to, to connect. Awesome. Well, it's always a pleasure, Jordan. Thanks so much for sharing your time today and uh, hit me up next time you're in Chicago. Will do. And I uh, appreciate you taking the time and, uh, and good luck. Absolutely. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thanks. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, Go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company, 
or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to packwest.com to learn more. Awesome chat there with Jordan. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is called types of specialties. The first type of specialty that Jordan mentioned was corporates. These are venture funds created within large organizations with a focus on taking equity positions with early stage companies that may pose a threat to their existing P&Ls or create opportunities to expand and grow their business. Specialty group number two was vertical or sector. These included funds that invest exclusively in a sector or vertical that could be real estate, insurance, healthcare biotech, or any other industry sector. The third category was niche-focused funds. These are funds with a horizontal strategy that offer some strategic value add. They may be bridging a gap or filling a need that hasn't existed across the funding landscape. The example here that Jordan cited was Bullpen, where they're providing that pre-A financing need. In some cases, you will find firms specializing based on geography, stage, or strategy. And the key distinguishing element has to do with the value that they provide. Investors and founders alike should ask, is the firm investing in this niche because the GP can drive unique value? Okay, key takeaway number two is called benefits and drawbacks of niche-focused funds. First on the benefits, Jordan talked about how this allows investors to gain access to deals that may be highly competitive. If you have a focus area, you can provide strategic value that other generalist investors cannot. This can help a small firm earn an allocation in some of the most competitive deals. The next point here is that a tighter mandate can reduce a lot of the deal flow noise. This creates much better efficiencies over generalist investors. The third point was that there is tremendous opportunity for knowledge sharing between niche-focused portcos. Some of the best value exchange happens between founders operating businesses with distinct parallels. The next thing that Jordan cited were the benefits of information asymmetry. And he gave the example of an LP base that can provide strategic value and insight during startup evaluation. Also, in some cases, the LPs may be potential strategic acquirers. And finally, on benefits, we discussed messaging and developing a brand. When an investor has a distinct mandate, they can message clearly to both founders and to upstream or downstream investors. This creates a brand association for the firm, allowing for much more targeted partnerships. And then we transition to drawbacks. Uh, Jordan talked about a lack of diversification. When one invests in the same area over and over again, they will not have the same degree of diversification as generalist investors. There's also the risk of conflicting yourself out. So I've heard many investors reflect on having to pass on investments in great opportunities because the timing was wrong, or they believe there's another solution that will be created to better address the problem. Imagine being an early investor in MySpace and having to pass on Facebook. The next point on drawbacks is that a lack of noise that we cited as an advantage can also result in a lack of opportunities. One could miss out on the biggest and best deal that comes their way because it was not in their focus area. Next, Jordan discussed how sectors can get hot and cold. When sectors get overheated, competition for allocations and valuations increase, while when sectors cool, there can be a lack of institutional LP capital interested in investing. And Jordan's final point on drawbacks related to the lack of track record that is often the case with niche-focused funds. Because most specialized funds are new micro-VCs, that also typically means that there's little to no track record for the GP. 
It could also be a thesis on a new area that hasn't fully matured. So LPs have to take a risk on not only a new fund manager, but also one that's in an emerging area. And this can present too much uncertainty for them to get comfortable. And Jordan reminded us that a firm need not restrict itself too much, preventing high potential opportunistic investments. In his example, if Travis Kalanick came to him with a new startup, regardless of the circumstances, Tusk would not hesitate to invest. So even the best niche-focused funds build in some flexibility for situations outside of their mandate. Okay, and key takeaway number three is suggestions for sectors with significant regulatory exposure. Jordan said that regulation always lacks innovation. And in light of that, he had a number of wise points to consider with regards to regulatory, including study the regulatory risks that exist in your vertical focus area. Risks can present opportunities if one is knowledgeable and prepared for those risks, but it's not advised to be investing in a sector without an awareness of the regulatory climate. His next point here was to get involved early. Jordan talked about the importance of working with regulatory officials to establish guidelines for areas that aren't currently addressed by the regs. When both sides understand each other's needs, he found that strong progress can be made toward a common goal. The regulators do not exist just to maintain the status quo. The next point Jordan mentioned was that many of the regulatory battles are fought at the state and local level. While the perception is that most issues are federal, from Jordan's experience, he finds that much of the time these issues are played out in smaller jurisdictions. Next, we talked about some of the industries that Jordan thinks are really interesting from a regulatory standpoint. These included the insurance industry, the cannabis industry, and sectors with 1099 workforce exposure. And finally, where there is significant regulatory exposure, it may be best to partner with another investor or an agency that has real expertise in managing the reg environment. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week, and this week's tip is called What's Your Gateway Drug? In today's interview, Jordan talked about how there are two kinds of startups, those that are solving a real problem and those that are addressing something that customers are totally unaware of and in the process changing their behavior. I wanted to use this week's tip to attempt to connect these two concepts and illustrate a pattern that I've observed with many founders. And this pattern has revealed itself to me in the form of two different startup types. Without question, every pitch I come across can be categorized into one of these two groups. First is type one, where the startup says, we're solving a narrow problem for a specific customer. And then there's type two, where the startup says, we're building a platform that will change the way customers behave. There are problems with each of these two types. In the case of startup type one, solving a narrow problem, often the problem is too narrow and the market is too small. So even if their solution is incredible, the opportunity size doesn't justify investment. In the case of Startup 2, the market sizes are typically massive, but they can't get adoption. In the pursuit of boiling the ocean and creating a whole ecosystem, they've confused and overwhelmed users. In the absence of addressing a real problem, there is no business. To provide a quick example of each, let's consider smart watches. On one hand, you have the fitness GPS-enabled smartwatch. They perform a targeted function and solve a real problem. I'd imagine the majority of the customer base is runners, and they're using the device to track splits and distance. This would fall into type one, a real business with real value in a niche market. On the other side of the spectrum, you have the Apple Watch. 
This product attempted to recreate all features of the mobile device in watch form. Apple took a new use case and went from zero to 100 on day one. The jury is out on success or failure of the Apple Watch, but clearly it has vastly underperformed their expectations. So while it has massive capability, consumers don't quite understand the value. And the behavioral changes required are too significant to be comfortable. Recall that the iPhone did not launch with thousands of apps and immense capability. It was quite literally a mobile phone with beautiful industrial design. The user experience was unrivaled, resulting in fast adoption. Apple iOS and the platform that we know today was a gradual development. Consumers learned how to use the enhanced capability app by app, version by version. The best pitches I see have a type 1 mandate and a type 2 vision. They're solving a real problem with a narrow customer base like type 1 startups. But they're doing this as a gateway drug, so to speak. The initial solution is a means to a much bigger opportunity. The gateway drug gets customers in the door using the product. This allows the business to grow with the customer and become a type 2 startup. If I were to have made a suggestion to Apple, it would have been to roll out the watch as they did the phone. Find the single most visceral problem to address with the watch and create a product that is far better than anything else for that use case. Then, over time, they can become a platform with many additional features, just as the iPhone did. So today, I facetiously recommend to find that gateway drug. Use it to build something much bigger. Founders that do will have a real business from day one and may have the opportunity to build a household name. Okay, that'll wrap things up for this week. Give us a share on your favorite social media site and also sign up for the newsletter over at fullratchet.net to get the best 10 investor-written articles every week. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining me. Thank you.